two Sundays ago, there was, um, oh, that was the summit, and there was a great Sunday morning message where my dad talked about the call. And at the end of that message, many hearts were challenged, and we had a huge pile of people here out the front, and uh, I took a photo of that, which I put in the newsletter, it was, and it was just a great moment. A moment where many people felt either the Lord was calling them to serve him for the first time, or people have felt the call of the Lord before, and they were coming back to say, Lord, I haven't forgotten, you know, I am here, responding to his call. And so that was a wonderful, wonderful moment. And um, there are two things I want to say about that, about that, the idea of calling and that response. First is, is that everyone is called, not just those who came out the front. And part of that sermon or that message two weeks ago was that when God calls, it's not optional. <laughs> Did you notice that in the message from two weeks ago? When God calls you to do something, he's not giving you a choice. Now what happened on that Sunday morning two weeks ago was that people did respond. They came out the front. They said, yes, I hear the call. I'm responding. But the call wasn't actually optional. So it could be that there were some people that, that you know, had felt the call and already responded in their life before. People like myself. I know the Lord's called me. I didn't come out the front to respond to the call. I've already responded to the call, um, but I mean, I did come out the front to pray for people, but it could be that there were a heap of people like that, and I'm sure that there were. I'm sure there were many people who know the Lord's called them and that they're serving the Lord with their life, so they didn't need to come out the front. But there could have also been some other people that thought, oh, the Lord isn't calling me. But if you thought that, you were wrong. The Lord was calling you, you just didn't realise. <laughs> and it could also have been that there were other people that knew the Lord was calling them, but they didn't want to respond. It could have been a few people like that. Well, if, if that was you, you made a mistake too. Different type of mistake. Everyone is called. And um, so the calling itself is not optional. You can, of course, choose to refuse, and people do do that sometimes. People sometimes say no to the Lord because they don't realise they're being called, or they say no to the Lord because they don't want to be called. Sometimes people say no to the Lord because they don't realise how serious and important it is, and so they kind of take it as like an optional thing, when it actually isn't. There's a parable in the Bible Jesus told, and it's, it's kind of got two meanings. It's got the meaning that applied to the individual people that were listening to it. And when we read this parable, that's how we think of it. But the meaning also had a, the parable also had a big meaning. It kind of applied to the Jews as a whole. Let's read that parable. It's from Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 to 14. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying... The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, 
Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fattened calf have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then the king said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. When the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. You could say lots of very direct things about this parable. And there's another parable that's very, very similar to it where there's a banquet and people are invited, but when the time comes for the banquet, one's just got married and he, he, he's too busy with his, on his honeymoon and another has got a farm and he wants to look after that and another's just bought cattle. In that very other similar parable, all the people were too busy doing their own things to respond to the invitation. In this parable, it says they paid no attention, one to his field, another to his business. So some of them were just too busy doing their own things. It says, but the rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. So the response to the call here, some people were just too busy doing their own stuff. They saw it as like an optional thing and they paid it no attention. But there were some that were deliberately antagonistic towards the call. So they, um, and, and that's why I say that this is a parable on two levels. On one level, it's a parable to individual people saying that you've been called and asking you to consider what will your response be to God's call. But on another level, this was a parable for the Jewish people because the Jewish people had been called to serve the Lord and they were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. The whole nation of the Jewish people was supposed to be an ex God's example to the rest of the world and they failed the calling. And then they basically crucified their Messiah and all the terrible things that are in this parable happened to them. And then the king went out and they invited other people. Now, who were the other people? The Gentiles, which was us. Thank God we were the other people. Thank God we got invited as well. So this is kind of a parable on two levels. It's a parable on one level explaining the big picture of what God did with Jews and Gentiles. But it's also a parable on the individual level, talking to each, and individual, each Christian or each person, saying, many are called, but few are chosen. And why are few chosen? Well, I told you a few minutes ago, few are chosen because some people think they're not called, so they don't respond. Some people think the call is optional, and they don't want to respond. Some people think, some people just hear the call and realise God's calling, but they don't want to respond. I don't think that's anyone here. <laughs> I don't think anyone here is of that third type, where they're just angry against the Lord. But I think in churches generally, people do fall into the first two categories a lot. People don't know that the Lord's calling them, or they, when they hear the Lord's call, they think it's just 
up to you. Yeah, you can respond if you want or not. And so we have to be careful that we don't make that mistake. I did a first aid course years ago. Um, I had to do the first aid course because I was doing uh, a scuba diving course. I'd gotten to level three, which is rescue diver. Rescue diving, in theory, you dive down to the bottom of the ocean and pull people out. Sometimes if they're still alive, you've got to learn how to bring them up without it popping their lungs on the way up, which is an interesting trick. And then you've got to learn to give them mouth to mouth as you tow them through the water. And that's very complicated to do. And then you've got to learn all the usual first aid stuff for when you get them to land, chest compressions and all that stuff. So I thoroughly enjoyed that course. And um, I've, I don't think I've ever felt a greater sense of satisfaction at completing that rescue diver course. Just the feeling, I guess the feeling I, I got from it was not that I could help other people, but I felt safer within myself as a scuba diver. Anyway, that's beside the point. The point was I had to do a first aid course as part of that rescue diver course. And then, and I'm bad at medical stuff by the way, it's a miracle I made it through the first aid course. Just ask my wife about medical stuff and me. Don't go together. Anyway, the worst thing about the first aid course was when we got to the end of the first aid course and I'd passed, by the grace of God, we were told that now that you know how to do A, B and C for people, you're legally obliged. For two years at least, anyway. Because after two years, then you've got to do a refresher course because, you know, things can change. Apparently, the number of chest compressions have now changed, the number of breaths, all these things change. I don't even know what the latest is. Um, so, but the thing was, if I'm somewhere, you know, well, back then when my course was fresh, if I was somewhere and someone collapsed next to me and there's no ambulance within Kui, I'm I was legally obliged to do what I knew to do for that person. Okay? That's a bit like what I'm talking about. Now, did I actually have a choice? Could I say, no, I don't want to help them? Well, I could do that, right? There would be consequences if I did that. Consequences for that person, possibly, who may just die. Then there'd be further consequences for me because of refusing to help. So the fact is, I ha I, you still have a choice. Like I still had a, would have a choice in a situation like that, but there's a legal obligation for me to respond. It's not exactly the same thing, but the, the call of the Lord comes to all people and the way the Lord sees it is he's called you. Now, you can choose how you want. There'll be consequences for that choice, which will affect people. It will affect you directly eventually, but it will affect other people around you as well. Because when you're called to serve the Lord, he's not thinking about you alone. He's thinking about other people in your life too. When you serve the Lord, when you respond to, to be someone that follows Christ, it has an effect on people around you, just like someone taking first responder action would do. When I see someone in need, they're, just drown they're drowning in a pool, and I reach in and pull them out, and I, you know, I respond like that. Sure, it's my legal obligation, but hey, I want to do it anyway. If I was in a situation like that, and someone with more intelligence or better first aid skills was not around, I would still do my best. <laughs> Even though I might give the wrong number of chest compressions and the wrong number of breaths, and I might not quite do it right, it's better than doing nothing. Right? You would have to say. So even though I wouldn't be legally obligated, I would still do it because 
I'd want to make a difference for, for a person in need. And so when the Lord calls you, he's calling you because it's, it's not only about you, it's about the fact that there are people around you that will only be touched by your life. The calling of God isn't only for those who are going into fivefold ministry. It's not only for people who are going to be missionaries full-time or pastors full-time. The truth is the Lord calls all people to serve him because there are people in your life that will only be touched by you. There are people whose lives will not be touched by the Lord and the gospel if you don't say yes to the Lord. And what it means to say yes to the Lord is basic things like praying for people, being willing to be a Christian in their life, serve them, love them, sometimes do things that are difficult or hard, make a little bit of extra to be loving, kind, considerate, do things you may not feel like doing sometimes, um, and of course being open to the Lord's direction whatever it may be in any individual given circumstance. And I think at peace, the calling of the Lord is not only on you as an individual, but it's on us all together because we've got this apostolic purpose. So we're called to support that even though we still don't completely get it. We've been talking about this apostolic purpose for more than 20 years and most people still can't articulate concisely what exactly that is. That's fine, but the Lord's called us to something even though we don't completely get it yet. So it's a collective calling, and so you are asked by the Lord to be a part of it. Of course you have a choice, but it's not optional at the same time, if you know what I'm trying to say. The Lord's calling is very clear. Like Moses responded to the Lord's calling in the Bible, but he could literally have turned around and walked away. He could have done that, even though the Lord's calling was not optional. Of course, he didn't. Thank God he didn't, because, you know, that's a pretty big, important part of the Bible. So when God places a call on you, if you think it's a nothing, you ignore it. Either you don't know who's calling you, or you don't fear him. But I just thought that screen behind us is pretty interesting in light of all of this, because Paul was felt he Saint Paul, Apostle Paul, felt a sense of calling from the Lord, and he knew it's God that's calling me. This isn't just like some, you know, it's just not like some human thing that's happening. This is God that's calling. And then with due fear and respect for the Lord, Paul was able to say years later that he was not disobedient to that calling. We're not all called to do to be Paul. Thank God for that. Um, I personally would not want a life like his, uh, or most of the people in the Bible, for that matter. But the Lord's called us to whatever it is the Lord's called us to, and whatever that means, we realise it's the Lord calling us. We receive it with fear and respect, and we do our best to be obedient to what he has called us to do. So the scripture that the Lord gave me for this message comes from Psalm 78, verses 9, 10, and 11. And uh, we're going to go and read that. Now, um, this scripture just popped into my head two weeks ago, and um, it's a strange, strange scripture. Uh, I don't know if they've got it up there, but let's read it. Psalm 78, 9 to 11. 
The men of Ephraim, though armed with bows, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant and refused to live by his law. They forgot what he had done, the wonders he had shown them. I heard this phrase in my head. It just came from nowhere. Um, the men of Ephraim turned back on the day of battle. So I heard that phrase and I was thinking to myself, that's, come, that's from the Old Testament somewhere. I knew it was from the Old Testament and we'd just been through in the daily Bible videos, we'd been through all the history of Israel. We're now into the Psalms. So we've jumped up, we've passed the historical books. I was trying to think to myself, where did the, the people, you know, there's 12 tribes of Israel, right? And one of them is the tribe of Ephraim and it was the biggest of the tribes. And I was trying to remember when the, the people of Israel, the people of Ephraim turned back on the day of battle. And I, for the life of me, could not remember when that ever happened. Because it sounds like it's talking about a battle, right? Psalm 78, it says, The men of Ephraim, armed with bows, turned back on the day of battle. So it sounds like there was something that happened, like an actual battle or a war or something. For the life of me, I could not find anywhere. I couldn't remember it. And then when I went looking for it, I could not find any Bible story where the men of Ephraim turned back. Right? I guess none of you know of one, right? Well, there isn't one. There is no story in the Bible where the men of Ephraim turn back on the day of battle. There are some stories where they're mightily annoyed that they weren't invited to join in other battles. There's an incredibly interesting story in the book of Gideon, uh, the book of Judges. Um, you should go and read that. And they had to test them, whether they could say Shibboleth or Sibboleth. That whole story is super interesting. That involved the Ephraimites. But there's actually no story where the Ephraimites turn back on the day of battle. And I was trying to figure out what is this psalm talking about? And eventually, it, and I even looked up commentators. Now, I guess there's a lot of them. I only looked up three. None of them knew what it was. All three commentators said the same thing. There was no example in the Bible of Ephraim turning back on the day of battle. And then they went off with some waffly spiritual thing of what it could possibly have talked about. Maybe some battle that, the, that wasn't recorded in the Bible. Well, I know exactly. I figured it out. I know exactly what this psalm is talking about. When Israel came out of the land of Egypt, Ephraim was the number one tribe. Ephraim was tribe number one. Ephraim was one of the sons of Joseph. Joseph was the birthright holder. Of all the, you know, they always gave birthright to the oldest son. The oldest son of Israel was Reuben. Um, he did some terrible things. He wasn't allowed to have the birthright. So it ended up being Joseph, who was the firstborn of the second wife. Joseph, of course, went to Egypt and was the great, great leader of Egypt, a man of high integrity. And his tribe, the Ephraimites, became the number one tribe. They were the tribe of leaders. And when they went into the promised land, the tribe of Ephraim led them. And the leader of Israel was Joshua. And Joshua was of the tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim was given a godly responsibility to take that nation into Israel, into the land of Canaan, and guess what? Subdue the land. Guess what they did not do? They did not subdue the land. The one thing that God asked them to do was go in and conquer the land that was there and drive out the inhabitants and establish it firmly as the Lord's land. The tribe of Ephraim was given that responsibility. They did not do it. Guess who did it? Someone called King David 
400 years later was the guy who did it. And guess what tribe he's from? The tribe of Judah. Now, we don't have time today, but if you were to go and read Psalm 78 all the way to the end, it says, The Lord rejected Ephraim, and he chose Judah. So this psalm was not talking about a specific little battle. It was talking about the big picture. The Lord had called them to battle. The Lord had called them to go in and conquer the land. It was a calling. The Lord had called them to drive out the inhabitants because they were like sacrificing their children in the fire and doing the most horrible, horrible stuff. They were supposed to put an end to it and establish a godly land, and they did not do it. So the Lord rejected Ephraim because why? They turned back on the day of battle. They didn't turn back on an individual day of battle. They turned back on the whole entire thing. They turned back on the calling that they had, and they gave up. So the Lord raised someone else by the name of David, King David, who did what the Lord said. He conquered the land. He subdued the land, and that's why we have a, you know, 100 years or so where Israel's just a wonderful place, where they're worshipping the Lord. So the Lord raised Judah, a new tribe, a new leader. And I was thinking about this example, and I was thinking, it's... It's, it applies to us as a warning. It's not, a, it's, not, it's not like a judgment, like saying, you've done the wrong thing, so you're, you're in trouble. It's just a warning to say, in the beginning, when, he, when the Israelites went into the land, they began well. They began, they conquered the city of Jericho. They conquered the city of Ai. They began well, but then... They just got used to a comfortable life and they were kind of in the promised land now and they all had their houses now and they all relaxed and started having families and they didn't finish the job. So it's a warning to us. The Lord was saying to them, well, the Lord's saying it to us too, that we must not turn back on the day of battle. We must not give up on the calling that we've been given. So we've been given this calling with apostolic purpose, we've done well, we've begun well. But we, the biggest danger is to get comfortable, to have a nice life. The church is a nice church. We get to come and hang out with our friends. The biggest danger is, after, is us to get into a pleasant rut and then completely not fulfill the thing the Lord's calling us to do. Now, I'm as susceptible to pleasant ruts as everybody, so, like, I speak from my more or less comfortable existence and say, hey, we've got to make sure we don't drop the ball on what the Lord's wanting us to do. You're allowed to be comfortable as long as you don't drop the ball. But what happened to the children of Israel when they dropped the ball? The Lord took away their comforts. <laughs> if you know the big story of the Bible... You know, you read the book of Judges, and they drop the ball, and the next thing the Lord sends against them, oppression. Because that oppression was supposed to stir them out of their, their, their you know, comfortable position to get them focusing again on what the Lord wanted. Well, let's be smarter than that. Let's not drop the ball. If the Lord's blessed us with comfort, it's because he loves us. We're supposed to be comfortable. The Lord was bringing them into a promised land because he wanted to bless them. They were supposed to be fruitful. They were supposed to have good things. That, the Lord wants that too. The Lord doesn't want you to be miserable your whole life. He wants you to be blessed. But your blessing is for a purpose. 
It's not just so that you can enjoy your life and forget about the purposes and the callings of the Lord. So Ephraim dropped the ball, but it's a warning to us to make sure we do not drop the ball. So what I thought I would do right now for a few minutes in closing is give you three things that you need to do. These aren't the only three things, but it occurs to me that there are, there are like two kinds of people here. There's probably more than two, but there's at least two. There are the kind of people that responded to the call two weeks ago, and now you've got a question in your mind. The question is, now what? Now what do I do? I said yes to the Lord, but my life's the same today as it was two weeks ago, so now what? Well, there's that group, and there's this other group that already know that the Lord's called them, or maybe you're someone that saw the calling as optional, but in any case, you're just in the church and you're just going along. What are you supposed to do? What do you do just going on day by day by day? Because nothing big and amazing seems to be happening, right? It's not like there's actually an army of Philistines about to attack us, right? Or is there? <laughs> or do we have actual enemies that we just don't recognise that need to be kind of taken on? There are three things that I think we all ought to do. Whether you've been called years ago and you're just in the church going about your regular life or whether you're feeling a sense of call and you're asking the question, now what? Here are three things you need to do. And it occurs to me that these are the types of things that King David would have done the day after he received his call. Have you ever thought about it from David's perspective? He's a shepherd boy. He's out in the fields. He's mining his sheep. A prophet turns up out of nowhere pours oil on his head and says, you're going to be the king of Israel, and then disappears, and he doesn't see Samuel again for years. The very next day, he's going to be out there in his paddock with the sheep, like he did every other day, and guess what he'll be thinking? Now what? And then he was in that paddock for years, every day. Now what? Now what? Now what? Well... I have a feeling that David very quickly came to a position where he worked out some things he should do. Number one, sharpen your sword. All right? David was out there in the paddock, and I have a feeling that he started practicing his fighting skills. He had a slingshot, and he practiced. They say that David was a mighty warrior. By the time he was actually a part of Saul's army, he was a mighty warrior. Well, you don't go from shepherd to mighty warrior by clicking the finger. Here's a boy, teenager that was out in the fields and he knew he's been called to the king and he knows that that role comes with fighting. It's a big part of the job. If you knew you were called to be a lawyer one day, you'd go study law, right? If you knew you were called to be a pastor one day, you'd pay attention to the Bible, right? I mean, you know, if you know you're called to something, you, and you know what the gist of it, you start getting ready. So David's out in the fields, no doubt, practicing, probably got himself a sword from somewhere, or if not, got himself a stick, and he practiced, practiced with his slingshot. He got good at fighting, so that by the time he was fighting, he was a great fighter. People feared him. Number one, sharpen your sword. Now, what is your sword? 
You all know what your sword is? Come on. You're allowed to answer out loud. <laughs> it's the Bible. It's the Word of God. It tells us in the New Testament that the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. That's from Ephesians chapter 6. Sharpen your sword. So, you need to become familiar with your Bible. If, you're being, if you have been called by the Lord, and you have, you need to get very familiar with your Bible. Okay? If you are wondering, now what? Start reading your Bible. Read it with intent to know what's in there. Read it with intent to know what God has to say to you. There are things in there waiting to be discovered by you that will not be discovered while the Bible stays on the bookshelf. They're only discovered when you open the Bible up. I heard a story once of a guy that had promised his son a, I don't know, a car or something when he graduated from college. And when he graduated from college, he was so looking forward to getting his car, and his dad comes out and says, congratulations, son, and gives him a Bible as his like, graduation from college gift. And he's so disappointed, he goes and puts the Bible on the shelf, heartbroken, angry at his dad. If he only just opened the Bible, the car key was inside, just right inside the front cover. Hey, there's treasures inside those Bibles you've got there on your bookshelves. Sharpen your sword. If you're wondering what now, you're supposed to be getting ready for something. Read your Bibles, number one. Number two, shoot some arrows. <laughs> so part of the call is an out there sense, but a part of the call is it's a now sense as well. So yes, there are things the Lord's going to call you to do which haven't happened yet, just like David was called to be king and he didn't become king for like 15 years or whatever it was. But at the same time, the Lord calls you to be a part of something that's going on now. So we're in a battle now. Yes, the Philistines are attacking right now. The Philistines are the things all around us that seek to destroy the word of God, destroy the power of God at work in our lives. There are people, like I said, who've been taken out by the devil. Well, there's an actual battle going on right now. The Philistines are attacking. Well, what should you do? Shoot some arrows. And what would those arrows be? Prayer. Actually do some praying. If you're wondering what now, pray. The Lord needs your help. Prayers are arrows. Be a part of a prayer meeting regularly. But also pray at home regularly. These are all a part of what it means to respond to the call of the Lord. In Ephesians verse 6, this is the famous spiritual warfare passage. I'm going to read to you these eight verses or so. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So we have an actual battle going on. There are Philistines, even though they're not physical Philistines. So therefore, put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then, 
with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray. You notice the armor of God, apart from the sword, it's all protection. All the things that the armour is comprised of are all defensive things or protective things. Things like being a person of faith. You know, someone who trusts God. Being a person of righteousness. Someone that doesn't live a wild life, but someone that lives a righteous life. All these types of things, which are Christian things, these are part of spiritual fighting. But then there comes a moment when you've got to do something that's attacking. Like all of that stuff's defensive, but you've got to attack, right? Well, it says in verse 18, you know, put on all these things and then pray. That's your attacking right there. Your, your praying is your offense against the devil. In other words, shoot some arrows. <laughs> they didn't mention a bow and arrow here in the armor, but I'm adding a bow and arrow in. <laughs> you got your sword and your bow and arrow. Pray some prayers, shoot some arrows, do some attacking. It says, pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. If God's calling you, and he is, pray. Be a person of prayer. King David, like I said, when he was called, he didn't end up becoming the king for something like, well, 15, but maybe 13 years. It was a long, long time. Um, he got quite frustrated in, that, in the intervening periods at different times when it just seemed like things weren't working out. You can read the Psalms. We're going through them right now in the daily Bible videos. One of the Psalms, which you haven't got to yet, he's depressed. And, um, well, it seems just like what God said to him is never going to happen. That's what it seems like, Psalm 38. Um, well, sometimes... You're never going to get to the place that the Lord's called you to unless you persevere with prayer and with reading of the scriptures. You've got to persevere. Number three. So number one, sharpen your sword. Number two, shoot some arrows. Number three, join a phalanx. <laughs> Do you even know what a phalanx is? Do you guys know what that is? Um, I wish there were some really good photos of phalanxes to show you, but there are not. Even in ancient Roman movies like Gladiator, which I wasn't recommending, but you know, even in those movies, there are um, no decent pictures of phalanxes. But a phalanx was a very... Oh, there's a picture of a phalanx. Someone's like, that's a kind of a picture of a phalanx. Now, that looks like they're def being defensive there, right? It looks like they're just getting together to keep themselves safe. But that's actually an attacking move. What the Romans, the Roman shields, by the way, were square. From front on, they were square, which was kind of unique in ancient battles, because a lot of the ancient soldiers, like Persians and Greeks, had oval or circle-shaped shields. But these square shields could lock together so there were no gaps in between them. And the little curve at the end of the shield means you could see out. The soldiers at the front of that block could actually see out through that little curve and see where they were going. So very, very well designed. So what they would do is they would form a phalanx like this and then they would march forward. So the enemy in front of them would be shooting a thousand arrows at them 
but not kill a single one. They'd have to get creative, like shoot big boulders or other stuff to try to break these phalanxes up. If you've ever read those Asterix and Obelix, com Obelix comics, uh, which are very loosely based in history, but the Roman battle scenes are just hilarious, and they have all sorts of fun things they do with phalanxes in those comic books. But um, basically, the Roman phalanx was, was the thing which, well, he's one of the key factors which caused them to conquer the world at the time. So what they were doing was instead of fighting as individuals, they were fighting together in a way that caused them to actually be effective. So I'm telling you that being, you need to be a part of a phalanx. You need to be a part of responding to the Lord's call, but with other people. It's not something you're doing on your own. There are a lot of people that say, oh, I can read the Bible and pray. I can be a Christian on my own. People say, I can do church on my own. That's complete rubbish. The word church literally means the gathering of God's people. How can you say, I can be the gathering of God's people all on my own? It's an oxymoron. It it's not, doesn't make sense at all. You cannot be church or you cannot do church. You cannot be a Christian without other people. The body of Christ is people. So sure, you can have a personal prayer time on your own, you can do that, but to be a Christian and to serve means doing things with other people. And so yes, it means coming to church and making that a priority. And I'd like to add to that, to try to endeavour to be on time as well. Um, I just noticed how lately everyone seems to arrive 10 minutes late. So I encourage you all to set your alarm 10 minutes earlier. And the closer that you live to the church, Give yourself another 10 minutes earlier than that. There's a kind of a back-to-front axiom. The further away from church you live, the more likely you are to be on time. It doesn't make sense, but that seems to be how it works. The closer you live, you know what I mean? Like if you live next door, for example, um, it'd be like, um, oh, it only takes me one minute to get to church, so you wait till one minute before church to start getting ready, but then it takes you 10 minutes to get ready to then walk the one minute to church. So then you're 10 minutes late, even though you're so close. So yeah, David's axiom for church attendance on time, the closer you live to church, the earlier you must get ready. Right? Let that be written down for all, for all time. Um, so yeah, I just encourage you to be on time, but what, the point I'm trying to make is that church attendance is important. It needs to be a priority to you. But even more than that, you need to be a part of a small group. And this is your phalanx, because... Roman soldiers were a part of the army. The army is the big group, but they were a part of the small group. They had um, Roman... I'm not that much of an expert on Roman armies, but they, had, they were broken into groups of ten, which I can't remember what they were called, but the leader was called a decurion. Then those were, there were ten groups of ten. I don't know what that group was called, a cohort or something. And the leader of that was a centurion, and they had other leaders that go on. There's people in the Bible who were Roman centurions get mentioned at different places. So you need to be a part of a small group, a group of 10, so to speak. That's your phalanx, your small group that you fight with. And so you need to, to as part of responding to the Lord's call, get yourself into a Bible study or a life group or something like that, which is going to help you grow as a Christian. There's a lot of people who never, ever grow in their faith because they're not accountable to anyone or no one knows how their life is going spiritually. But when you're in a small group, 
your life is a part of the lives of other people. So you're coming along and people are saying, you know, in church here on a Sunday, we all see each other, but I don't know how any one individual of you is going in life unless we have a, sp a personal conversation. On a Sunday morning, I'll have no more than two or three good conversations with people, but there's 120 or 150 people. So it's very, very hard to know how anyone's going at any given time. That's why life groups are important because we all need people that we live the Christian life with. If something goes wrong, they're the people that will pray for you. If something really goes wrong, yeah, we're gonna, the pastors will get involved. We'll pray for you. But as you go through life with all the regular ups and downs and everything, you need to be in a life group because those people are walking the Christian life with you and you're walking the Christian life with them. There's a place where you will serve your fellow believer and your fellow believer will serve you. It's a place to learn how to receive and to learn how to give, learn how to pray in front of other people, learn how to share what the Lord's showing you in the Bible. That's what the small group is for, and that's your phalanx. That's where you're going to fight together. There's going to be people that you know that, that are unsaved. You're going to pray for them together. There's your phalanx at work. If one of you is struggling, sick and unwell, the group's going to pray for you. That's your phalanx at work. So this is the benefit of being in a small group. But if you're not in one of those small groups, you're like a lone soldier out on the edge, well, you're just a bit more vulnerable. It's not a great place to be. So my point this morning in wrapping up is that you're all called. The calling isn't optional. You can, of course, respond however you want, but you're not supposed to. You're supposed to, to say yes to the Lord and in responding to the Lord, we ask ourselves the question, what do we do? And I'm telling you that there are multiple things to do, but at least three things are sharpen your sword, shoot some arrows, and join a phalanx. We do want to get the, the life groups and the Bible studies of this church back running at full steam. We do have seven or eight. But I also think this could be a closing thought before I pray for you. I do, do think that there are people in this church who are waiting for someone else to start a life group or they're waiting for someone else to start a Bible study so they can join it and I think that maybe you're supposed to start it rather than waiting for someone else. And maybe that's the call. Maybe that's a part of what the Lord's called you to or maybe by responding to that first step that'll be a part of you coming to the place where the Lord eventually wants you. So that's just a thought to throw out there for you to consider. If you're not in a life group, are you supposed to start one? If that thought feels scary to you, then I'd say good. Not a single person in the Bible, with the exception of the Lord's mother Mary, who was an entirely remarkable human, completely like hardly anyone else I can think of, it's no wonder Catholics think highly of her. She was different to other people. That's why the Lord chose her to be his mother. But apart from Mary, who's exceptional, everyone in the Bible who got who the Lord called was scared and didn't want to. You know what that tells me? If you're scared and you don't want to, you've just qualified yourself. You've got all the right credentials to do the job. Paul said, was it Romans or somewhere, he said, 
I preached with fear and great trembling. Well, there you go. If you're afraid, you're in the same category as Paul. You've qualified yourself. So that's no excuse at all, in my opinion. Anyway, think about that. So anyway, I basically am putting it out there to say to you that the call of God is real. The call of God, call of God is on you. And he calls you because he needs you to do something. Respond to his call. I'm going to invite the band to come, and I'm going to pray. Um, let's all stand. Let's all stand. And, and I, what I want is our standing up now as we pray to be a response to the Lord. Many of you did respond to the Lord two weeks ago, but I want in your standing this morning as we pray to you to say to the Lord, I hear your call and I obey. Now you might be saying, well, I don't want to say that. Or maybe you do want to say that, but you don't want to say that at the same time. Maybe you want to say, yes to the Lord, I respond, but maybe you're a bit worried about what it's all going to mean. Well, that's fine. Then your prayer is going to be, Lord, I'm scared of responding, but I'm going to say yes, and please help me. That's going to be your prayer, okay? And that's the prayer I'm going to pray for us today. Lord, we respond to your call this morning with faith. First of all, the faith that recognises that you've called, the faith that says we know it's real, we know that it's from you and it's important, so we don't disregard it. Lord, we respond with the faith that acknowledges it in its full seriousness. But we also, Lord, respond this morning knowing that we're just us. We're just weak people. And if anyone's going to stuff it up completely, it'll be us. Lord, we, we don't have the ability to respond properly. So our prayer this morning would be to say, Lord, we want to do what you want and help us. Lord, strengthen us. Carry us forward. Lord, you've helped this church over the last 30 years to get through all sorts of interesting things. Lord, would you help us again? Lord, I pray for each and every one here this morning with all the different types of lives they live, the different jobs and families and careers and opportunities, all their personalities. Lord, we are a diverse group. Lord, put your hand on each and every person this morning and strengthen them in grace. Help them to be, Lord, in that place of, of humble recognising that they need your help. But Lord, also obedient response to you saying, Lord, yes. So Father, we say yes as a church and we say yes as individuals. We, we don't want to be like Ephraim who got comfortable and then just stopped doing anything. But we want to be, Lord, like Judah, like David, that did what you called us to do. So help us. So this morning by faith, I release a grace upon the church, the grace of the Lord and the peace of the Lord upon each and every heart and upon the people. Now, Lord, bring us into the place you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.